0: Welcome to the
1: podcast of ideas. The debate you're about to hear was held on Tuesday, the 9th of June from Minneapolis to Hyde Park. What does George Floyd's killing mean for British society? This special Academy of Ideas lockdown debate is one of our many public forums, salons and meetings, which are open and free to anyone who'd like to attend during these strange times. But if you can help us financially, we'd really appreciate it. To gift us any donation, big or small head to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Thank you in advance. And now on with the recording. Hello, everyone, I'm Ella Whelan. I work with the Academy of Ideas and I was the co-convener for the Battle of Ideas Festival uh, in 2019, along with Alistair Donald, my co-host. And really delighted to be chairing this event tonight um, from Minneapolis to Hyde Park or Parliament Square or Tooting or Watford or all these places that these protests have been happening. What does the killing of George Floyd mean for British society, British politics, um, for us who are not out on the streets uh, or watching from home in America? Um, What does this mean from a UK perspective? And, you know, this is a card on the table, this is a difficult debate, and it's something that's been incredibly heated for obvious reasons, um, not least because of the brutal way in which George Floyd died and the sort of spectacle of us all watching that. Um, But also because as many people pointed out, this wasn't for many people a shocking event. It's something that's happened a lot um, in not just in recent history in America, um, but has been happening for a long time in terms of police brutality against black men, um, racism in America, and the tensions are running incredibly high. So protests turned into riots, turned into looting, turned into, statue toppling there's been there's, so much has happened in the space of a week uh, it's been difficult to keep up and a lot within that debate there's a, uh, a strain of thought that argues that white people should shut up and sit down educate themselves take themselves out of the conversation and allow uh, black people to lead the discussion around racism there have been criticisms of that Uh, The very interesting thing has been the role of Black Lives Matter, both as an organising force and also as an organisation that's been occasionally absent. So in relation to some of the UK protests because of the nature of lockdown, uh, Black Lives Matter took a position of not officially calling demos, which led to this quite interesting situation in which the Parliament Square demo, if any of you were there, I was there, felt had a different kind of vibe to it. It felt very... uh, homemade there was lots of cardboard signs and young people with loud tailors saying you know making speeches in different pockets of the of around Westminster so this is a complicated picture and while we're taking it from a UK perspective of course some of our speakers are going to want to mention uh, and reference what's going in the US I know that we have some people in the audience who are American and we'd very much like to hear your point of view as well but really the, the kind of the question we want to get to is things like, is America and Britain the same when it comes to uh, racism? Can there be equivalences drawn there? Or is the history different? Is the politics different? Um, Is racism a kind of a, is it present in terms of systematic oppression, as some people argue, or is it more specific? And, uh, you know, if it's not too much to ask, quite crucially, how do you deal with all of this if you are someone who thinks that racism a problem and should be fought back against if you are a genuine anti-racist. What do we do next? So thankfully it's not me wittering on to try and give some answers to these, but I have an expert panel of Battle of Ideas speakers who have been with us through the years of our festival and have spoken on many, many different subjects. But tonight I'm going to come to you to give their thoughts on this UK's perspective of the whole debate around George Floyd and the aftermath of his death. Um, So I'm going to introduce them in the order that they speak, and then we'll hear from them for about three to five minutes, short introductions, and then we'll head straight back out to you guys uh, from the floor in true battle of ideas, academy of ideas, public debate styles. The only very formal thing I'll say before we begin is that I think you'll notice that I have rather forcibly muted everyone. Um, which isn't me being authoritarian, <laughs> although maybe slightly, but it is uh, just practically in terms of the size of this debate and the way in which it runs. If you sort of let me be authoritarian on the controls and unmute you, and mute you, uh, when's necessary to bring you in, that will work best. So what I'm basically saying is hands off the buttons everyone, I've, I've got this though so that might be famous last words. Um, so now I'm going to introduce my speakers and the first uh, person who's going to speak tonight uh, is Patrick Vernon OBE, who is a social commentator, founder of 100 Great Black Britons and creator of the Every Generation game, the Windrush edition. Um, And that's obviously something that's very important right now. I don't know if anyone watched the documentary last night um, detailing one of the instances of someone who was Penalised under that hostile environment um, Patrick since 2010 has been leading the campaign for Windrush Day and in 2018 kick-started the campaign for an amnesty for the Windrush generation As part of the scandal and his actions led to a turn immigration policy and the resignation of Amber as Home Secretary So he has a huge amount of um, knowledge in that area and has campaigned for a long time on that and we're very happy to have Patrick here tonight Next up is going to be Ania Folarin Iman, who is the co-director of the Free Speech Union, former project manager of Index on Censorship and former Brexit party parliamentary candidate in the last election. And Anaya writes extensively on freedom of speech. She's actually written a piece recently on this very subject um, And looks at the kind of issues that inform this debate around what you can and can't say about the protests What you can and can't say about racism and the, uh, the way in which freedom of speech plays a very important role in, in this debate So welcome uh, next up, we have Dr. Shahar Ali, who is the Home Affairs spokesperson and former deputy leader of the Green Party, and author of Why Vote Green 2015. Uh, and for in 2015, and for many years, uh, Shahar has been a prominent and outspoken campaigner for civil liberties against the consequences of flawed policy from the detention of UK residents in Guantanamo uh, and the fatal shooting of demensis to the Islamic, Islamophobic effects of the PREVENT program and irreconcilability of the IHRA definition of antisemitism with free speech on Israel. So again, someone who has extensive uh, knowledge in terms of the debates around freedom of speech on this issue uh, and the ways in which racism plays out in other debates, particularly in relation to PREVENT and the kind of screening that that entails. Next up, we have Kunle Olalade, who's the director of Voice for Change England, a former creative director of Reebok Productions, and a member of the African Odyssey Programming Board for the BFI. Uh, and Voice for Change England is a BME charity and a support body. Its members number over 400 black community organizations and charities covering everything from criminal justice to migrant rights. Kinley says that it's he believes it's time to develop develop a new narrative around race equality away from deficit models and for many years he's talked about the issue of racism um, at the and race at the battle of ideas uh, and is also someone who's uh, very involved in music and has DJed a few times with some of our events so he's a man of many talent so welcome to Kinley. Last but not least is Dr. Cheryl Hudson, who's a lecturer in US political history at the University of Liverpool and co-editor of Why Academic Freedom Matters, which was published in 2016, and Ronald Reagan and the 1980s, which was published in 2008. Um, She was on Sky News this morning talking about this very issue, um, and she works a lot in terms of publishing. She's published in the Journal of American Studies, the European Journal of American Culture, uh, and many others. So Cheryl is... uh, as of this morning has been talking about this so we thank her for continuing to talk about it into the evening with us so without further ado i'm going to turn over to the speakers uh, and they'll forgive me for interrupting them rudely if they run over the time that we've agreed and then it'll be straight out to you guys so without further ado patrick over to you
2: hi good evening everyone it's really fantastic to be on this zoom call and be involved with the fraternity of Battle of Ideas and, as well. So, um, obviously, what happened in America, and obviously today is quite important, we've had the kind of the burial of George Floyd, Floyd in America, uh, in his hometown in Houston, Texas, as well. And, obviously, the reverberations, it's not the first time we've had reverberations, because you have to go back to the 1960s, when we had a civil rights movement in America, and the Black Power movement in America, and that led to civil rights um, and one particular moment in time, which I think I like to remind people, is when Martin Luther King, um, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1965. He was travelling to Oslo to pick up his, his award, but he made a stop off. He stopped off in London, central London, in the hotel in Bloomsbury. And he met a number of white, Asian and African Caribbean activists who had the opportunity to have a private conversation with him and they picked his brains, they said, what can we do in Britain to fight the issue of racial justice and racial inequality and the colour bar in Britain? He gave them advice and inspired them, and that led to an organisation called The Campaign for Racial Discrimination, or CARD, it was abbreviated. That organisation of white lawyers, people who understood at that stage in the 60s about white privilege, Asian activists, and one particular woman who sadly passed away this year, Dame Jocelyn Barrower, she passed away at the age of 91. A young activist, someone from Trinidad, was a school teacher, and they formed this organisation which played a key role in shaping and influencing the 1965 Race Relations Act, and then later on the 1968 Race Relations Act. Dame Jocelyn Barrow became the first black woman to be a governor, and she's paved the way for tens of thousands of black people in Britain around campaigning and raising the issues around Black Lives Matter. So in the 60s, we had our journey, which is similar to the, different from the journey from America, but we had our own civil rights journey. It may not be as glamorous or sexy, where I have a dream outside White House, where ten hundred thousands of people, but we had our own history of civil rights through legislation and policy change. But that history actually goes far back as 2,000 years. The likes of Septimus Severus, one of the, the nearest person that we're going to have, to be quite honest, to a black prime minister, who's a Roman emperor, he was actually based in York, and his remains are still in York Cathedral, and he was his job was to rebuild Edinburgh, and to keep the Scottish at bay, the Celts away, away from coming over the borders, basically, and that that is a long history, and you then if you roll the history another thousand years forward, you have got the likes of uh, Elodo Equiano, born in Nigeria, of Benin um, state, as we now know it. And basically, he, he was captured as a young boy, taken to America, but he was able to buy, pay for his own freedom, come to Britain, and then he started the campaign around abolition. Often the, me- the history and the media focus on William Wilberforce, but actually, it was Equiano who wrote a bestseller about his memoirs and there were other activists uh, and other people during that time doing the same thing as well. So we've had a long history of Black Lives Matter. In many ways Equiano is the grandfather or the great grandfather of our own civil rights movement in America. And that is is the difference between us and America. We've been here over 2000 years, even though obviously we came, more of us came post Second World War and obviously the history of the women's generation compared to the history of America. I remember, modern day racism and segregation and all the elements and all the apparatus was developed in Britain and we exported it to America. Remember, America was a colony of Britain until we had a Boston Tea Party and where they declared self independence But the umbilical cord between America and us is a transatlantic slave trade. Britain profited, made its money, and America profited and makes money. And that is the foundation, and that's the umbilical cord between the African-American civil rights movement and our civil rights movement here in Britain, because we have the same common enemies or destinies of, of basically of imperialism in America and the USA. And that has been a link for many, many centuries in many ways. And ironically, a lot of African-Americans used to come to Britain to write their memoirs Phyllis Wheatley is a good example, she had to come to Britain to tell her story how she was enslaved in the plantations in the deep south of, of America. The railroad system of Harriet Tobman we had similar systems here in, um, in the UK as well, so there you have that umbilical cord, as well as the modern-day issues around the cha- prison ch- chain line, pipeline scenario. And, and that's why I think a lot of black people in Britain identify what happened to George Floyd in America there's a commonality of our African heritage that all of us were taken away from Africa. All of us were abused and and exploited because of the slave trade. You had Jim Crow in America. We had the color bar here in Britain. So, and these are the similarities and comparisons. And maybe if we had plantations Sugar plantations in London, or in Cornwall, or in westmorland or Northumberland. Then maybe white people in Britain might understand and appreciate the history of colonization, and empire. So when something like the um, last minute, Patrick, the Colston statue is removed, despite the fact there's been a long historical process and dialogue with people of Bristol to to this this talk about this kind of controversial figure. I saw it as a I saw it, uh, I compare that to the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989. That Berlin Wall came down as a simple like, fighting communism, ending communism in, in, in uh, Eastern Europe, Germany. And what we need to do in Britain to have a similar process will end structural racism and discrimination, particularly for people of African descent.
1: Thank you very much, Patrick. I'm afraid we usually would clap, would be relatively impossible mm-hmm. to do that on Zoom. So. Imagine a virtual clapping for that, thanks Patrick. Right, next up we have uh, Inaya, so I'm going to unmute you.
3: Um, I agree with um, a lot of what has already been said in terms of the kind of historical, kind of cross-cultural fertilization between the um, situation and context in in America and the one in Britain. Um, And I kind of support a kind of continuation of that historical radicalism. But I think that what we're seeing in this instance um, is not exactly um, in line with that particular tradition that's being described. And to kind of answer the question specifically in terms of what does George Floyd's killing mean for British society? I think it really depends on how we transform the somewhat legitimate grievances that have been expressed in this movement into a coherent proper political program that can be interrogated and debated. What I've been really concerned about, and that's kind of what I've been writing about, is the homogenization narrative and the kind of um, exportation of. The American racial culture wars and using that to um, blanket a particular narrative of what it means to be black um, in the UK. So for example we've seen kind of people saying hands up don't shoot um, in front of a you know relatively um, demilitarized police in the UK and I think that there is a really big danger if we overemphasize this kind of narrative of um, white privilege, structural racism, victimization and oppression Um, of the black experience, I think that we are actually sending a kind of deeply, deeply demoralizing message to what I've said before is a um, young generation of black people, including myself, that are growing up in a society that I think has genuinely made leaps and bounds when it comes to race relations. And I think that we really have to put things into perspective. And on top of that, in terms of the culture wars point, I think that's really important because um, I think that a lot of what we're seeing is an extension of a kind of pre-existing movement that um, uses tactics of kind of mob rule, um, shaming, um, and very divisive tactics in order to affect political change. And I think that that's really dangerous and has the potential to actually be more divisive and roll back... Um, race relations in terms of the breakdown of political um, debate and discussion about these really important issues. And yes, there is still racism that persists in this country. But as I've already said, I think that we both have to have perspective, but also nuance in terms of, um, there are various different um, issues that are affecting even different parts of the black community in terms of like black African, people of black African heritage and people of black Caribbean heritage, there are significant disparities there. So what I would like to see going forward is not only Um, kind of making these um, really grand statements about the nature of British society in this really negative way, I would like to see much more platforming of a wide range of diverse voices, intellectually and ideologically diverse um black voices um co- constructing a coherent political program as we do with any movement as we saw the you know with brexit and other movements that have affected change in this country we need specific ideas policies that can be debated interrogated in a democratic way not this um what i personally believe is this um quite divisive politics of kind of ripping pe- ripping things down censorship um and and these kind of simplistic narratives that don't really address the um nuances and complexities, I think, um, can actually, um, be responded to in particular.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Anaya, for that opening, those opening thoughts. Right. On to Shahana, who I'm going to unmute. Sharia, the floor is yours. Thanks Ella.
4: And, um, uh, many thanks for the invitation and everything that your organization does. In fact, it could hardly be more important that we discuss a topic like this because I feel as though, race, racism, it often is brushed under the carpet. And of course, indeed, that is one of the problems. And what we see right now, not just on the streets, but on social media is a kind of divisiveness. Clearly people taking sides, some sides of which they may already have decided upon. And as if by a process of of confirmation bias, Two groups, two sides even, can be looking at the same data, the same scene and drawing radically different conclusions. And that's why I really do believe in your ethos of the organization in terms of free speech and the utility of that. So in this short introduction, I just want to sort of cover very briefly sort of three three main points. So what is the problem? Who has ownership of the problem? And what is the process? Firstly, what is the problem? And it feels actually that there is a lot of solidarity and agreement about what that problem is. We can argue about what progress has been made in British society around racism. And indeed there has. But has there been enough? Do we need to go further? Do we need to go faster? Yes, we do. And so, This moment in 21st century British politics and internationally is actually quite unique. It's quite pivotal. We don't know whether this is just going to be flash in the pan stuff, but what is extraordinary is that, as did Rosa Parks in 1955, Alabama, in her refusal to give up her seat on a bus, help inspire a civil rights movement. This can also do the same. And the reason I say that is that one of the things that people are complaining about is how can people put themselves and others at risk during a Covid pandemic, just in terms of health grounds. Well I'd rather rather flip that observation on its head. To the contrary, it's because people do understand and get the injustice, the obscenity of racial prejudice, that they are prepared indeed to put themselves, their very lives at greater risk, by protesting about it, by vocalizing about it. And what exactly is that racism in British society, for example? Well, in 2005, we had somebody wrongly identified on the basis of race, as it happens, Jean Charles de Menezes, shot down on the basis of a shoot to kill police command, which didn't enjoy public consent. Nobody knew about that. And the gold commander in that fatal shooting, Cressida Dick, is now the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, even though she herself had to face numerous investigations and was her decisions were found wanting. For me, that's quite extraordinary. Not only that somebody was killed on the streets of London in that way, but that the gold commander was subsequently elevated to Metropolitan uh, Police Commissioner. I would defy anybody to imagine that a black person who had been at the helm in that fatal shooting could have been elevated to Metropolitan Police Commissioner some decade or so later. So I do think there is structural institutional racism which needs to be addressed. And who has ownership of that problem? Um, Ella in her opening remarks talked about white privilege. This is an element of the debate, I think, which really needs tackling. Who is allowed to vocalize, take ownership, and address the problem? Well, really, I think the answer is very simple. All of us. It's that simple. If we are part of the problem, whatever our skin color, if that is a major characteristic which is the causing the problem, then we all need to be part of the solution. And what I don't want to be see happening is a, a kind of a exclusion of those who not just have their heart in the right place, but their head in the right place, who understand unconscious bias, who understand institutional racism, who campaign on it alongside everybody else. They need to be part of the debate. They are part of the solution. And we need to make sure that all of us, yes, in a kind of a color blind fashion, are enabled and empowered to embrace proposition which is structural and institutional prejudice. So let's not make or remind people about their race who stand alongside us as allies in trying to combat racial prejudice. We need those allies. Finally, in terms of the process, this can be quite destabilizing and of course there is a lot of disagreement um, thinking about demolition of the Colston statue, for example, around what are legitimate means in a democratic process. Well, I think it's always been the case when there's been momentum and a transformation of society, this has required people taking to the streets, vocalizing, mobilizing, and showing the urgency of change that they demand. It's not almost a protest, it's a demand. And symbolic as the demolition of a glorified statue of a slave trader may be, this can also help galvanize public opinion and popular opinion. And there may be legitimate disagreement about that. For sure, that is a process of, the act of taking that statue down is an act of direct action. And I think what we need to be clear about is where does the line begin and end where direct action becomes violence. For example, I do not condone, in fact, I would condemn the throwing of projectiles, objects at police and at buildings. That's not direct action worthy of the name because guess what? It's not intelligent. So direct action worthy of the name needs to be rational, intelligent, and yes, it may risk breaking law. It may actually on paper be criminalizable. But the police in in Bristol that day, the superintendent we've heard from, allowed it to continue. And that again raises a question about double standards. Why are we allowing that to continue? Is it because the police in some sense were intimidated by the prospect of intervening? These are important, challenging, difficult questions to answer and address about the place of protest juxtaposed alongside the rule of law. But we do know and understand that often, mass movements have had to resist and challenge current legal uh, practices in order to overcome them and reform for the better. So,
1: last look- point now, Sarah.
4: I'm looking forward to the debate. Um, I think there's there's plenty to discuss, and I hope also that we can reach not just accommodation but a deeper understanding about the way forward. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Right, moving um, on now to who should be unmuted.
5: Um, It's good to be with you tonight to discuss this uh, topic. Um, Like many people who saw um, the graphic images of uh, George Floyd being suffocated, um, quite compelling and evoked uh, a human response of revulsion and anger. Um, The events that we've seen over the last week Um, I've clearly stemmed from that um, initial um, incident, but uh, from what I have seen, I'm not completely convinced that it's um, about simply George Floyd. It seems to me that there was a rage and an anger, which um, mixed with the notion of um, a pandemic, which has a disproportionate impact on people of main backgrounds and the question of repression and the, uh, I suppose, the energy and frustration of young people that this was more than just about what was happening in America. And certainly one of the things that um, has kind of vexed my thinking over the last two weeks has been to understand why it is that in this country we have um, a history of Equally, if not even more brutal deaths at the hands of um, police authorities We have never seen the kind of reaction um, nationally um, in relation to those um, That we've had in relation to the events in America indeed um, you, know, you could talk about Mark Duggan in 2011 and the riots that followed um, There were riots, but there were very little in the way of protests in the way of actual arguments being advanced about wanting to transform society. Um, And with that, it kind of moves me to uh, my next point, which is the question of um, systemic racism, as it's being called. Um, Quite interesting, I've never heard the term systemic racism being leveled um, so much as I have heard in the last um, three weeks um, as a as a long-standing anti-racist myself um, certainly the question of racism being systemic has always been at um, the heart of some of the issues that uh, I've taken up over the years particularly in relation to questions of immigration um, and we were very clear in terms of my younger years that um, there was a distinction between racism on the one hand and prejudice, very careful not to muddle the two. And so, the systemic nature of racism and its roots, its material roots in the way society was organized, was something that um, was strongly held and strongly felt. So, when I hear people today talking about um, systemic racism, I wonder if we are actually talking about the same thing. Are we talking about um, systemic racism in terms of uh, a system of oppression or a system of oppression which is based on individual behavior and therefore the solution um, to the problem of race is the regulation and control of individual behavior. So I'm just throwing that one out there. The question really, uh, I think, is at the heart, I think, of what um, needs to be discussed and needs to be discussed honestly. Um, Because society has made improvements in every era, uh, and there have been improvements, even in race relations in this country. But from much of the commentary that I've heard, you would believe that actually nothing has changed in the last 400 years. can't possibly be the case. Um, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that we are in a post-racial society. So don't uh, caricature me or or try to present that argument. What I am saying is that we have to understand those things that have changed and those things that remain the same. So for example, we know that um, in terms of the improvements in the educational forms of uh, BME Kids has, has been something that's uh, been long admired and talked about. Um, but what we haven't seen is the translation of that educational attainment and performance into an improvement in the job market in terms of the way that um, employment as opportunities has improved uh, for those young people. So, you know, there are swings and roundabouts. And I think when we're looking at race, there's too, too much of a tendency to be, it's either one thing or the other. And we need to have, I think, a much more reasoned and measured debate about what's been going on. I'm just gonna say briefly, touch briefly on the issue of the statues. Um, As some of you know, um, I'm on the board of the English Heritage Trust, um, which looks after about 400 uh, buildings and over half a million monuments and paintings across Britain. Um, and they include uh, places such as um, Stonehenge um, and uh, Kenwood House in London. Now um, I thought what was said by uh, Patrick was interesting about history and you talked about the nature of the relationship between Britain and slavery in America. Well Patrick just remember uh, Britain also gave um, America the Mansfield judgment, uh, the first recognition that um, uh, a black individual could not be actually uh, forced into slavery in this country if they were exported from America. Uh, Indeed, the Mansfield judgment is celebrated on the 22nd of June, the the same day as Windrush Day. And uh, that legal judgment lays the basis for changes in the American legal system that paved the way also um, towards uh, uh, changes in American legislature. So you know, if we're gonna talk about the relationship between Britain and America, let's not just concentrate on the negative stuff, let's also remember, I think there's a lot of good stuff that's come out of the UK in terms of race relations that in fact America has learned from and could still learn from. Um, and one final thought would be-
3: Very quickly. can we?
5: Is there anything now that we can actually learn from race relations in America that could apply to Britain? Um, And I think that's something serious to think about.
1: Brilliant. Thanks very much for that. Great opening thoughts. Um, Right now, last but not least, we have uh, Dr. Cheryl Hudson.
6: So I really agreed with um, lots of what Kenne just said. Um, But I'm going to focus much more on the US context. That's what I know about. I have been fascinated with um, US history Um, all my life, um, I am uh, really intrigued by the founding ideals of liberty and equality and the the contradictions and the ironies within US history that emerge when you think about these things uh, less as abstract ideals and more as kind of concrete lived realities for people. So the largest of those contradictions, of course, is race. Um, African Americans so clearly have not and do not enjoy the same citizenship rights as other Americans. Um, Historically, they've not been free and there continues to be um, large racial disparities. So they aren't equal. Um, So racial injustice, racial inequality, segregation and racism have been constant features of US history. But I want to echo what Kunle just said and say that this focus on continuity in race relations um, is, uh, I think, it really concerns me because history is never um, just about the things that stay the same. Um, There are always changes um, and even if those changes aren't for the better they need to be recognised and we need to be alive to um, to those changes if we really care about making the promise of freedom and equality real for all citizens. So. When I was uh, an undergraduate, I'm reading all about the US civil rights movement. I was very idealistic. I went to study in the University of Mississippi uh, to find out about this history. Um, And a few things happened. Um, when I was there that really kind of highlight some of the changes that have happened and can help us to understand race relations today in America um, and how the racial question has really changed. So the three things that happened there, and they all happened in 1992, so I think this is a really key year. 1992 was the year of the Rodney King riots. Um, There was police brutality, which was being responded to, as in the 1960s, But but the people who were responding to it were not all african American. So the the rioters, um, as in the 1960s, they'd been all African-American in the urban centres. There were Hispanics, there were Asian, there were white rioters in 1992. So that was a shift. In 1992, there was also uh, the US Supreme Court handed down down a decision um, on the Ayers case. And I came across this because I was on my way walking to of the University of Mississippi for my class and I saw outside the federal building a large group of African Americans protesting and I thought oh that's really interesting I'll go and find out what's happening over there so I went and found the organizer and spoke to them and they told me that this airs decision had just been handed down which had said that the Mississippi higher education system was um, still segregated and it had to change Um, and these this group of African-American, quite a large group of African-American students were protesting in order to keep the three historically black colleges open and alive for serving the black community. And, um, and, I, and that just kind of struck me as that strange because I thought the civil rights movement was about integrating everything, not keeping it separate. So that was another kind of shift I, I logged. And then um, the third thing in 1992 was that Bill Clinton was campaigning for president. And um, just before Super Tuesday, he posed um, outside. And I think, Ella, are you going to put up the image that I have? So he posed um, outside of Stone Mountain, Georgia. Um, and this was his kind of racist law and order bid for president. Okay, so the, the if you're wondering about Trump's Play, um, kind of play on the law and order thing in in the current situation he got his script from Clinton right so Clinton was playing this race card It was flanked by bigots um, on a street named after a KKK chief and in front of a mountain that was created or carving in a mountain that was created to commemorate the confederacy so if you want your racist cultural symbolism you have it in just bucket loads there. Um, And of course, the result of of Clinton's presidency was the uh, crime bill which where he said, three strikes and you're out, Um, welfare reform, these things leading to mass incarceration so that now a young African-American man is much more likely to be in prison than to be in college. So it made me see in 1992 that the US problem with, with race wasn't confined to the South, although it still is in the South. Um, and it certainly wasn't confined to the 1960s, um, but has it take, taken a really different form in the postmodern era. And I think 1992 was the, a really key year in that shift. Um, and today's riots are kind of a continuum of that, or a, a, the logical consequence. You know, there have been a lot of brave African-Americans, people like Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, um, who worked hard throughout US history to reconcile the promise of American freedom and equality with the reality of black lives. Um, So Martin Luther King pointed out that the founding fathers wrote a promissory note to future generations um, that turned out to be a bad check. And he said, it's time to cash that cheque in his big speech, right? So the difference today though, and I think since around 1992, is that young people um, simply don't believe in the founding ideals anymore, those, those enlightenment ideals of freedom and equality. Um, yes, I do think some of them are idealistic still, um, but many more of them are nihilistic and they're searching for meaning. But, um, Not to mention that many of them also don't have a bank account to to cash that check in. So this is, I think, a material economic concern, as much as it is a symbolic cultural one. Um, And the freedom and the equalities that America promised are still not being delivered to all of its citizens.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for your (laughs) thoughts. Um, Right, I said I was going to come out, but I've actually decided, having listened to our speakers, that I just want to ask one or two questions of the panel just very briefly before we get stuck out and that will give you guys in the audience a chance to get your hands up there. As I see some people are doing, find that raise hand button um, and get it up. But um, Inaya and Patrick, really, if I come back to you, start with maybe with you, Patrick, um, and ask about this point that Kunle and Cheryl have brought up in terms of that history is both made out of an understanding of continuity, but also of change. And, you know, the, if you were going to take a critical view of Black Lives Matter, um, you'd say that they are posing a uh, a narrative that says that because of white privilege and white supremacy, there has only been continuity of racism, both in the US and in the UK, and that there hasn't been change. Um, but do you, I mean, how do you respond to that in terms of the kind of points that, especially Cunley has raised in with the, you know, the idea being that any kind of, movement for progressive change should recognize its victories um as well as its shortcomings
2: sure and that is why that's the reason why i, I gave that narrative about dame boston Barrow and others around the 1965 act around the legislation that that was the first piece of legislation which has influenced to all the quality of legislation that we take to gain so it's not like i'm saying that um, there's been this continuing racism, there's been no achievements. Of course there's been achievements, that's why we're here. That's why we've got probably more uh, black amount MPs in Parliament, even though we haven't got enough senior black people working at senior level at NHS, despite the fact that we've been there since the creation of 1948. So of course there's been change. And I know Cunley uh, mentioned about the Mansfield um, legislation, and that was important as well. But that had more impact in the UK than the USA to be quite because it meant that if someone who was enslaved or the position of a plantation owner and that person came to Britain they weren't technically speaking in, still slave whereas in America people were still enslaved that's why we had underground movement and unfortunately we had to have the civil, civil war between north and the south and that was one of the main reasons why we had the war because of slavery so let's, let's be real about that and often conflict does require violence I'm not saying I'm not I'm not supporting violence go own violence um interesting Nelson Mandela when he um was released um and one reason why he stayed in prison for a long time it was always asked by the, the apartheid regime we used to ask him just sign Long, the started line and say that you will rescind all violence and terrorism and he refused to do so that's why he spent all that time robbing Ireland Mm. and then when he came out and became president he was interviewed by American journalists to say why are you support why do you recognize Arafat Castro um uh they're terrorists and he turned around and he made this very powerful statement who are who are your enemies Mm. America wasn't was supporting apartheid Britain was, was supporting apartheid but particularly Cuba if it wasn't for Cuba who were able to mobilise nearly 100,000 troops to fight in Namibia and South Africa I believe that apartheid will still be happening now today mm-hmm. so this is quite important that when you look at history let's put it in the context of reform that's important but there's also in terms of resistance the reason why slavery yeah ended was because of resistance of people fighting the maroons fighting the plantations in the caribbean in south america and in north america as well
1: great thanks patrick and and if i come to you and i mean that that point that patrick raises i mean there's that there's a quote by a video of james baldwin um that's been doing the rounds on social media where he talks about the fact that you know you say that these things take time where you've had my great grandmother's time my grandmother's time my mother's time how much time do you need and there's that sense also of within these protests today that um there's lots of especially young people just saying i have had enough of this and i'm not going to sit around and wait for us to have long discussions about reform i want change now how does that fit in does that have a place how does it fit in with what you're arguing for which is a much more um formalized political discussion about policy change or you know that those kinds of things
3: um, a few things that i would say i think first um as i said, i i do agree with a lot of that has been said and i think it's really important that we are analyzing um the history and how we kind of got to this point but i do think that we are being um, somewhat idealistic in terms of what um the actual particular black lives matter movement are i think if we actually interrogate many of the demands that are being put forward for example in America but um, to some extent here as well um, I think many of these demands actually um, for example defunding the police and, and things like that are actually legitimate things that are being called for and now being advocated for um, in many of the um, um, the governors and the states so I think that we can talk about um, kind of the history of race and, and how it um, plays into the dynamics of what is going on today. But I think that we also have to root our conversation um, in the present day and recognise that not all of the um, things that are emerging and, and coming out of these movements are actually uh, fundamentally addressing the things that are being um, talked about. So the, the thing specifically that I will say is is this notion of kind of systemic racism and this idea that all racialized outcomes are automatically are, um, are automatically um, because of racism and I think that this is actually um, a particular pernicious idea that um, needs to really genuinely be unpacked so to so kind of bring it back to u k for example um, and as i 've written about before, there are actually significant disparities in terms of for example educational attainment in regards to the different um, um, black ethnic groups in Britain. So I think that when we kind of generalize this idea that that disparity is inherently to do with um, an external kind of systemic problem, rather than actually I think there are persistent um, ongoing things within the, the Black community or some sections like internalized racism that get, that get, that, that get projected outwards, into the way in which many um, sections of black community might act in the world, I think that then we're missing those particular issues. So I think that um, Mm. ultimately it is um, important that again we are having these conversations, but I think we we need to be quite frank and honest about um, the different narratives that are being played and how they're actually impacting the responses that we are getting.
1: Brilliant, thank you. Um, Shara, come to you next. Because one of the things that you picked up on was this idea that we should be um, inclusive. And I don't know whether you were referencing the debate about white privilege there. Um, But obviously, the part of the difficult discussion around this particular moment of response to George Floyd's killing is that there has been, you know, what I tried to outline in my intro was that you know, these protests that once feel kind of separate to the official line of Black Lives Matter. And there's a load of stuff going on. There's as many, for example, the one in Parliament Square. there was as many working class kids, black kids there as there were middle class kids with, you know, white silences, violent signs, and it was a whole mix of stuff. But the, but the, you know, the very strong line in all of this is a sense of victim politics, if you want to put it that way, which is that, you know, statues oppress me, Uh, inanimate objects, things, comments about my hair, oppress me, rather than a focus on um, the, if you want to put it that way, structural racism, or the kind of material ways in which black people are oppressed, so is that something that can be ignored, or do you have to, do you have to take the leap and say actually you're wrong in terms of putting it in this way, or maybe you think it's right, what do you think?
4: I think the answer to your question is, is partly around the um, complaints about so-called identity politics, and So let me address that, because it's also coming up in the chat as well. Some people are diagnosing um, the problem, I would say, as partially confected as as a result of identity politics. I think that's a mistake, and that's badly overstating it, but let me try and explain why there might be something to it. Um, Where I think identity politics, in the pejorative sense, does rear its ugly head is precisely in trying to disempower those who would seek the same goals as those who are trying to overcome racism uh, would make to try and say that, for example, because you don't share the characteristic uh, by which you would have been unfairly disadvantaged in society, you have no right to speak out against it. That is so badly wrong. It is so disempowering. And most importantly, it's counterproductive because just as there are two sides to any of these equations, there's the impotent, the powerless, and the the ones who are doing the oppressing. It's those oppressed individuals who also belong to particular groups who may not be part of that characteristic, who are oppressed in the main, need to be part of that solution. So it's doubly important that we embrace and commend those who are joining in that collective struggle, as we've seen a very uh, multiracial. Uh, complexion to those uh, marches, that's something which we should applaud and commend. What's right about um, the difference that you may see between uh, different races is in their lived experience. And for sure, those who have lived through the practices and the oppression of racism, at whatever level, may have more to say and more insight into the matter. Let me just give you a small example because it it speaks to structural racism as well.
1: Very quickly, sorry, because I've overrun in terms of asking questions, so very quickly.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, many years ago, I rang up um, uh, a recruiter and asked them, what do you actually mean by this um, encouragement of people from back in ethnic minorities? She goes, well, the person on the other end of the phone, I shouldn't worry about that. We're not really going to do anything about it. Um, But anyway, where would you like me to send the application to? So, you know, I gave her my name and suddenly it's as if you could hear her voice drop because she hadn't realized, because of my accent over the phone, that I might have been a target of this um, proactive policy. And so it just conceals the double standards and, um, if you like, uh, the lip service that is paid um, towards initiatives, positive initiatives, which aren't acted on and have no intention of being so. And that is a kind of a structural racism just there.
1: Brilliant, thank you. Sorry, I, I've, I've realized that having promised to come out to the audience, I've decided to ask you all questions, which is <laughs> not on. But I, uh, to be fair, I am going to now just quickly ask the kunlin and Cheryl really the same question, which is, where do you see this going? Um, has just brought up the, the question of lip service. And if you were going to be... Um, Um, if if you're going to be uncharitable you'd say that I have noticed lots of my white friends um doing things which look like lip service in terms of you know the the black square that went out over social media lots of people criticize that for being kind of the music industry playing lip service to this debate and you know people talking about buying from black businesses but you have this kind of sense in the back of your head that they're just sort of waiting for this moment to fizzle out and we can get back to life as usual? Or is there, or is there something more transformative going on in these um, protests? They certainly feel different to 2011, for example. Couldn't your thoughts first,
5: briefly. Let's get, one, let's get one thing straight and I'll be brief. Um, the worst thing that could have happened in relation to this tragic incident is that there had been no reaction at all. Uh, yeah. That is the worst thing that could have happened. So Black Lives Matters, even with all its problems, actually, there's an element of it which is actually a positive development. What we have is a very confused political situation and a situation which is people are coming into which is very much an era of depoliticization. And for me, the question of you know, where does this take us, I think uh, it takes us to a place where we have to disentangle a whole lot of mess and uh, a lot of messy ideas and a lot of um, bad ideas but a lot of very public-minded spirited young people who are desperate for change and in that sense I think there's something to work with so I'm going to leave it there.
1: Brilliant, thanks Kenley, and really the same question to you Cheryl.
6: Um, yeah, I, I don't know, I really think it's a mixed bag, um, like the, the crowds, they're very youthful, um, they're very mixed in terms of um, black and white, male and female, um, and um, most of them are you know, protesting peacefully. I think there's a lot of understandable anger in the crowds, um, and, and there's a big dose, I think, of um, real disappointment and frustration at the failures of um, the populist left. we just had Bernie Sanders being, um, uh, losing in the primaries. We've had Jeremy Corbyn over here um, losing in the election in December. Uh, I mean, and across Europe, you know, leftist um, populism has kind of uh, crashed and burned. So I think there's a lot of anger amongst um, young people in particular about the future and their inability to shape it. So, so it's, know they don't have a leadership they don't have goals they're just kind of acting out it's very performative and um you know I want to encourage the idealism I want to encourage the fact that they want to change the world but I just think that there's a lot that's not positive about it or at least that that I don't feel is um or I feel pessimistic about it's where it's going to go I just feel like it's going to fizzle out just like a kind of um a tantrum and then it's going to go, and that it's not going to actually affect or change much at all. I mean, it may make some changes, but um, yeah, I'm not. Fi- I'm. I try to. I keep trying to talk to myself out of the pessimism. And um, like Gunley said, you know, that it would have been worse if nothing happened. You know, that at least the um, the the youth want to change the world. They want to make things better. But I just, it just doesn't look like it's going in a positive direction.
1: Okay, thanks, Cheryl, for that. Uh, honesty um, right now I'm going to come out to the floor and there's a lot of you and what I'm going to do is take uh, a good handful um, maybe seven or eight and then come back to the panel for really brief um, comments and they're all ballot idea speakers so they know how this runs um, in terms of being not answering everything um, so I'll first of all come to Elizabeth Cameron Welcome.
7: Hi, um, Elizabeth Cameron. So um, I want to be able to say with what I say that I've been a long time sort of 20 years trade unionist so very much also informed by the employment situation but also I've been somebody who's formed community groups, worked with ethnic minority populations as we are disadvantaged groups and um, it's really a commentary about Change, the weather change has happened, and I did listen to uh, what Naya said, and uh, and I have to say that from it's not that the middle aged are are bringing back an argument for something that never resolved. It's because it's almost gone round in a circle. It's been some sort of cycle where you've looked at policing, education, housing. The first people you would ask a group together today will come up with these same things of areas of inequality. So policing, education, lack of um, uh, uh, historical context to ourselves as black people, you know, education, not being, um, employment, not being able to progress Uh, in trade union movements, lack of progress and an acceptance that once we sort of set up black only groups, Here, there, and everywhere, that we've kind of solved the problem and unconscious bias will take care of it. What this, to go back to the question and directly answer it, what it has done is caused a focus that where people are decision makers in all of those areas, they can start to want to do something about it. And it is galvanizing action, but it takes the decision makers and the leadership of our country, as well as those who oppose it to be able to move this on and make something out of it is for them to take those conversations and make them into policy and we look at why in 20 years we can see what was the sus law is now the gang's matrix you know it's nothing's really changed yes
1: brilliant thank you elizabeth that's great and a good example of how i don't i don't need you to just ask Questions, please make comments like that. And Elizabeth kept it nice and brief, which is perfect for our long list. So thank you. Um, next up, John Holbrook.
8: Sadiq Khan announcing he was going to have a, a race or a diversity audit of London statues and landmarks. Well, of course we all know where that's going. He's going to discover that vast majority of statues are of, of white men. Ho ho ho, who's surprised at that? And then he's going to say, Right, well, we must have more black people because we must make the statues representative of London today. And of course, what he's doing is trashing the notion of merit. In other words, the idea that people are on statues for reasons of history, or because of endeavour, and so on and so forth, goes out of the window. And more broadly, all of these racial audits work on the same basis. They mean that you don't take into account different cultures different social norms, different individual effort, which was a point that Cunley made. You're not allowed to look at any of those issues today. The only thing that you can focus on, according to the race-baiting left, is race. And I think that the real tragedy is that whereas Martin Luther King dreamed of a society where people were judged on character and not the color of their skin, nowadays the left are judging people on skin color.
1: Okay, Thank you, John. Uh, Luke next, Luke Getos.
8: Uh, thanks Ella. Uh, well,
9: I totally agree with the point raised by um, Shara that um, we can 't allow for those who, have, who share common aims and common um, outcomes or attempt at common outcomes to alienate themselves from one another, but my worry is that that 's exactly what uh, the Black Lives Matter narrative encourages. I think if you look at some of the founding texts and, and I, I sort of want the panel 's feedback on this because I wonder whether each speaker has sort of underestimated the potential damage of adopting the Black Lives Matter narrative about how we live and how we should live. Because if you look at what these people are arguing, both on you know this portion of the left, typified I think by people like Robin DeAngelo Di- and others, is that everyone should think of themselves racially. I mean, as that, uh, John uh, suggested, what we're encouraging, we're encouraging a whole generation of young people to start from skin colour and to say, what does your skin colour tell you about your assumptions about the world, about the experiences that you've had of the world, and about how you should relate to one another? And I think that's an incredibly destructive uh, way to proceed, and it's certainly a huge backward step. It certainly marks contemporary anti-racists out from the anti racists of the past. John mentioned um, uh, Martin Luther King. But if you look at James Baldwin, uh, the whole generation of writers recognized that the point was to transcend individual race-based identity. And that that was the eventual hope, that was the idea, the utopia. So I just wonder whether the panel has slightly underplayed the potential impact of encouraging a whole generation of people to think of themselves in racialized terms. And just to say, we should also recognize that the problem here is not the demonstrations themselves. I think that the content of those demos have been, as Ella suggested, a kind of mess of, reacting against the lockdown, reacting against um, police authority in general, but then also a complete a collapse of adult authority around the demonstrations. So we've seen, um, you know, the police completely unwilling actually to enforce um, the rule of law around these demonstrations. And, no, and, and also every single institution in the West falling in behind the Black Lives Matter narrative, there has been very little institutional or, uh, or, or adult response which questions the, found, the founding narrative of Black Lives Matter. It's been an incredibly forceful and dominant and persuasive for a lot of uh, our institutions. So isn't there a lot of, is, isn't actually, the, aren't some of the speakers actually underestimating the potential damage that this unquestioning acceptance of Black Lives Matter's, Black, Black Lives Matter's narrative uh, is having on our young people? And isn't this actually going to end up being quite catastrophic for race relations in the long run?
1: Um, and take Claire Fox next.
10: Uh, thanks, That's really thought-provoking discussion, just maybe following on from that actually. Um, Anaya actually made the point about racialising so many issues and one of the things that I find frustrating is, is that, particularly at the moment, any issue you come up with, any discussion you have about uh, social problems, uh, economic problems, every problem has suddenly become racialized because now we have to adopt a particularly racialized narrative. And I think that is problematic because it means that you get into a muddle about what is racism and what is just a way of seeing everything through the prism of race. And, you know, that includes uh, class and uh, all the rest of it. But I, but I actually wanted to ask a question about the racializing, divisive nature of the present discussion. You know, first of all, uh, somebody talked about um, white allies, I mean, I don't, I don't wanna be anyone's ally and I don't wanna consider myself uh, through the prism of being white. I consider that I want to treat people and be treated as their equals. And I know that, you know, I've done a number of media issues, you know, discussions on this, and people will actually say, how dare that white woman whitesplain this issue? You know, you're not entitled to do it. You must show suitable humility. What do you know? So first of all there's a kind of a really essentializing aspect to that isn't there that effectively threatens people um, I, and it effectively says you know that you have to have this kind of uh, you have to get permission to be allowed to speak which doesn't seem to me to have any kind of a positive uh, universalizing aspect to fighting racism but the other thing was somebody said well you know racism anti-racism becomes box ticking and um, somebody made that warning and that's really true that, If you actually only have one narrative that you're allowed to embrace, which is a very particular identity politics version of anti-racism, then I'm not surprised, you know, when we heard about that phone call where they kind of say, oh, it's just box ticking. Because what happens is it's all done in bad faith. You know, people are kind of taking the knee, but because they're being told they have to take the knee. If every institution goes along with this, you're not fighting racism. You're basically just throwing everything into a racialized pot. And just finally, as part of that, somebody in the chat raised the issue, you know, who's afraid of Black Lives Matters. Well, of course, Black Lives Matters is just a phrase. Some of it's an organization. Some people are just say Black Lives Matters, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say because Black Lives Matters. But when you get to a situation where if somebody else says all lives matters, that they lose their job. If you get to a situation where there's an atmosphere that people are frightened to query some of this narrative, they might be doing so sometimes with a backward prejudice. Some of them might be racist. Some of them might just be asking, What on earth is going to happen if we close down debate so that people feel that they have to say the right thing or they get direct? And there is a real McCarthyite atmosphere and in particular a demand that only certain people are allowed to speak. And when you speak, you only say the same thing. So I welcome this debate because it's much more open. But I do think that there is something frightening going on at the moment in terms of a dictatorship of what you're allowed to say about fighting racism. And that doesn't feel progressive to me at all. Great,
1: thank you, Claire. Um, panel, I'm gonna keep going just for a few more and then I'll come back to you, but I'll give you fair warning. So now I'll go to Sham.
11: Can you see me?
1: Yes, hi, Shamini.
11: Hi, hi. Um, okay, there was just <clears throat> something that puzzled me about um, just the current uh, protest and the reaction to it was, um, a lot of people seem very optimistic about This protest and um, what they sort of think there's going to be really good outcomes from it. And it puzzled me because um, it's, you know, the the demands are much more vague, as people have said, and much more confused, unlike protests in the past, which had real real kind of demands. But it's also um, coming at a time when the economic situation is going to be worse after the lockdown than it was before. And if you think that a lot of the prejudice against uh, the position of black people in, is based on the position of black people in society, where many are unemployed or on welfare or involved in drugs and crime, um, why is that gonna get better if the economy's gonna be so much worse? Why do people have such a hopeful view that things are gonna change for the better?
1: Brilliant, thank you, much. Um, right, I'm going to come back up the list to
12: Kerry Dingle now from World Right. Hi, um, thank you very much. Really fascinating introductions and insights. Um, I have to say, and I found An- Inaya, Inaya, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, um, this introduction really inspiring and so refreshing because I do think we are doing young people a huge disservice by not being brutally honest with them. I'm 61 and remember protesting after the um, 1981 swamp in Brixton, after the shooting of Cherry Gross and Cynthia, and murder of Cynthia Jarrett in Tottenham in uh, 1983, and more specifically in 1990, sorry, 85, and in 1993, the horrific murder of Joy Gardner uh, when she was asphyxiated with gaffer tape by the police. There we were a tiny minority, black and white. We were thin on the ground. We were, you know, outlawed, and it was very difficult to even hold a meeting, and um, never mind get a trade union or anyone else on your side. Now things are incontrovertibly different. I mean, I don't believe, and few nutters aside, that anybody thinks the murder of George Floyd is okay any more than anyone in Britain thinks slavery was okay. And letting young people know that there is some sort of continuum or that their lives are as blighted as George Floyd's family has been is an outright lie. And I think we should be very, very honest. I don't see anything progressive in what we've seen in Britain in the last week. I really don't. I don't think we're telling young people the truth about history. We're not informing them of your CLR James or what Martin Luther King, uh, as one of your speakers pointed out, uh, got up to along with white people. We're allowing this to go unchallenged. And it seems to me that it is predominantly a desperate search for an injustice that they haven't actually experienced. And to say they have is a fib. And I meet it all the time with the young people I work with who think they have a lot in common with Meghan Merkel, who's experienced this terrible racist Britain. So a princess, you know, has has had this appalling time. That's what we're talking about, a victim culture gone mad. And I really think we should be brutal in your face and risk being called out for it because we will be because you're not allowed to say that kind of thing. But otherwise, we're doing young people a huge disservice and lying to them. Great. Thank you, Kerry. I'll come
1: to Noah Keat now, and then I'm going to come back to the panel um, in the order that they spoke. So Patrick, I'll come to you first after Noah. Uh, Noah, your thoughts, please.
13: Hello there, Uh, good evening. I've enjoyed this evening, the comparison between the UK and the USA and some of the speakers' discussions, and I wonder whether one of the differences between the countries is that um, America has a sort of more ambivalent or more sceptical approach towards big government, and you see that in their constitution um, with the Second Amendment giving them the right to bear arms, and that that sort of ambivalence or an anathema towards big government has framed some of the discussion over Black Lives Matter in terms of ideas of, you know, defunding the priests, getting lots of traction in the USA, and hardly in the UK so far. Um, secondly, I wonder what the panel thought on the balance between, you know, in terms of tackling racism, and the balance between legislative changes and winning over hearts and minds of individuals, because while social media might be quite effective at showing the toppling of the statue that took place on Sunday, you know, I wonder whether it would get as much attention as, you know, white paper published that was trying to tackle changes. And as that went through select committee hearings, I unfortunately don't think that will receive as much attention as the immediacy of a protest. Um, and finally, I'm going to sort of present a bit more of a positive attitude towards of protest, couldn't we see them as sort of a celebration of free will and the idea that those protesting is simply against determinism and the, the idea that your background shouldn't shape how successful you are or aren't in life. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you Noah. Right Patrick I'll come to you and really um, just very brief sort of one point from each of you now on the panel because I want to get through the um, the list. So Patrick far away.
2: Okay uh, well it's, it's been a good debate and I think what Claire said um, that it's important to have debate. But the problem in this country, we don't have a debate. We give the impression that we're a democratic country and there's free debate. And often people say, if you talk about racism, we can't talk about racism. If you talk about racism, then, then you're just being politically correct. And the problem we need, you know, we've had, one of the problems with this country is this country built its wealth on slavery. My ancestors and many ancestors on this chat were you know that what was built on the slave trade and this country has never ever spoken in an open way about it at least in america they've talked about it and they might disagree but at least have a conversation and this is important we give this pristine image of britain it crossed between east enders and bride revisited where we have this beautiful britain of like, tv programs like i'm the midwife or or and, and 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 gives this impression that there's no racism in britain or it's not on the same level remember britain controlled three quarters of the world and it exported racism to places place like america america was built on racism a violent history first getting rid of the first nation people then the africans were brought over that's the history of, of america but britain's got similar history as well and one of the key issues is we're not being upfront well, upfront about it we don't talk about it we give this impression that we're, we're very genteel but if all the plantations were in the were in Britain, in the West Country, we would know the true history. And it's a violent history, a history that we don't wanna talk about. So this is quite important. And I think what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement, and it is a movement, and there's different aspects of that movement. Some aspects of the movement focus on climate change, some talk about police brutality, but it's a wake up call for this country. And Martin Luther King has been cited quite a few times. And do you remember, In the last part of his life, his young life by the way, he realized that race race wasn't enough. It was race and class and imperialism. And that's maybe one of the reasons why he got assassinated because he started to put the picture together around the political context of capitalism and racism combined, which I think is important. Race on its own is not sufficient. It's about the class system and the political system. And we have a meritocracy in Britain. So we have the likes of Boris Johnson, condoning what happened in bristol and talking about i'm listening yet thousands of people from bme communities are dying of coronavirus and and the government has no plans they don't care there's no initiative and when they decide to do something it's half-baked mm-hmm. that's why people are angry and they're taken to the streets
1: all right brilliant thank you patrick um, and thanks for agreeing to be brief because we've got a lot to get through so uh, yeah. anaya floor is yours now
3: I think one of the reasons why a lot of what is going on does feel somewhat directionless is because um, I think, again, it's not recognizing that Britain today is a fundamentally different place. And as much as I recognize and and deeply appreciate and want to understand these complexities of history, whether people like it or not, we can't change the past. And what I'd really like to see is a more positive kind of future oriented vision of what kind of society or or what kind of specific things people would like to change. Because um, in reality, um, for the past year, I have actually seen um, a a negative um, backwards turn in relation to race relations in this country, and not for the reasons that are being described in terms of Britain all of a sudden becoming an incredibly racist country, but because I've had you know seen a rise in kind of white identity politics people saying it's okay to be white in reaction because there's been um this kind of over obsession with dividing people by race and not seeing people as individuals and i've had um you know people messaging me um um you know white people messaging me saying oh you know what can i do to help you and things like that And, and some of it is you know genuinely sincere and wanting to help but it's this kind of um response to what i've seen is the kind of identity politics movement which refuses to recognize people as individuals and I think it is taking um, a genuine step back and I think we really really need to call it out it would be wrong to assume that all things that are being done or claimed to be done in the name of anti-racism or kind of um, progressive politics is inherently going to produce something automatically positive and, and I think we have to be honest in calling that out um, we have a very suffocating climate right now when it comes to free speech and thought that um, for me in and of itself is an example of how um, you know that's a context that doesn't always necessarily produce the most kind of positive outcomes. A lot of what has been described to me, um, uh, you know, as systemic racism and things like that, you know, from my perspective have have, are actually issues related to um, inequality more broadly affecting people from across races. And we've seen the kind of stagnant wages, living standards and and the kind of material lives of young people not being improved um, in the promise that has been um, said to them. So I think that there is a just a mix of things that are being um, um, homogenized into this one narrative about racism, which I think, again, as I've already said, is doing a huge disservice. Now in terms of, um, you know, it's up to the leadership to kind of respond to um, what is what has emerged. I, I think that that's very true. We do have a vacuum of leadership in this country and it does feel like, um, um, you know, people, particularly in the establishment, are on the back foot when it comes to these subjects or even pandering um, to what I think is in some ways the lowest common denominator of, you know, you saw police officers saying that they didn't really want to step in mm. when things are at, when criminal damage is being enacted. And so ultimately what I'm saying is that I think i I don't i'm i am quite pessimistic and concerned about this assumption that everything that is happening is is the kind of continuation of a kind of progress and progressive politics when actually on the ground in terms of what we're seeing um, emerge from the narratives that are coming from this are actually things that threaten to wind the clock back quite significantly
1: brilliant thank you and shahir now your
4: thoughts i'm just going to pick up on um Claire's, Claire's points at, whoops, you hear me?
1: Yes, yes, far away, yes, yes. I'm
4: just going to pick up uh, predominantly on Claire's points actually, because um, it felt like quite a lot of people, uh, that resonated with people in, in the audience. Um, in terms, Because I think I'm probably one of the first people to use the word ally in this debate. Um, it feels like the complaint there is that it's a kind of a second class advocate, and I certainly didn't mean it in that way. Um, the analogy I might make actually is, um, I would regard myself as a feminist, does that necessarily mean I'm going to be at the forefront or I've had the deepest experience of uh, prejudice based on sex? No. Um, and therefore I might not be best place to be at the forefront or at the helm. However, I, am, I can be an equal, an equal partner in that campaign. And I think we've got a very good word for um, people who are galvanizing against racism and they're called anti-racists. And when I'm marching, campaigning with anti-racists, I don't categorize them as black or white anti-racists. I just see them as anti-racist. And I think the most important point here is absolutely the disgust, the torment, the pain and the anguish that we all feel and are horrified by in that particular brutal killing of a black man is not so much because he's black, although that does add to the gravity of the offense, is because we identify with him as a human being. We can all identify with the thought of suffocation, that the pain, just through our imagination and empathy, and ultimately it's that which gives rise to progress and unity. It's the human in us. And it is absolutely the case, you're right, that You don't have to be a fan of Jean-Paul Sartre to know that on different days of the week, different times of the day, we might be occupying different roles. You know, if you're a consultant in a medical ward, you're not a black consultant as such. You're just a doctor dutifully doing their job as any other health worker is. So it's absolutely right, I think, to question um, this attempt to homogenize people into a very reductive category. But at the same time, we mustn't lose the plot. It is the case that people are treated differentially on the basis of a circumstance of luck and some might regard it as bad luck. That's the thing we need to cut through. Ultimately, I think even the goals and the aims of Black Lives Matters protesters and those who are writing the campaign slogans, they don't actually want to be treated anything other than equally. It may be that there are differences of opinion with respect to how much you should identify with your cultural heritage, but I think ultimately the true goal is to be treated as an equal. And to answer another point, the main show. the main difference between this movement, I think, the reason it can cut through is to overcome denialism about the scale of the problem and the scale of the challenge. And it certainly needs all of us on board to tackle, once we've seen with a clear view what the scale of the problem is, to overcome it.
1: Brilliant, thank you. Kunle, you're up next for your brief thoughts.
4: Um, I think
5: what people have talked about is the destructive properties of the idea that we can overcome uh, social problems through the regulation of individual behaviour. And I would actually say that in terms of looking at in the race context, it's most clearly seen in the the current um, discussion around um, people's attitudes uh, to things like bending the knee. But it's also, I would add, it's not exclusive to the question of race. We see it in the debate around transgenderism. We see it in the discussions around the Me uh, Me Too movement. So um, this notion of to conformity is not um, distinct to race. That is a much bigger problem. What I would say is that um, we need to give people a bit more credit um, for common sense. You know, talking to uh, Black working class people in Bristol today about the pulling down of the Coulson uh, statue, um, many of them are not stupid or daft. They're very clear that this is a con job, that the idea that pulling down statues somehow is a radical act that will transform their lives. They see it for what it is, a complete symbolic gesture, nothing more than that. And I think the question really is, how do we... Uh, enable our our, our our young people to understand that actually racism is a material question and requires um, actual much deeper thought and a much deeper challenge to uh, the establishment than what's being offered at the moment. Um, in particular, somebody asked about whether that transformation comes through can come through legislation. In the con- current context, you know, I could only think that a new race relations act would be a complete nightmare uh, of epic proportions. And the type of stuff that um, Kerry was talking about, uh, you could see that writ large. Because the only form that a new legislation would take would be um, the kind of stuff that pretty much we've seen in relation to COVID and, people, uh, uh, and, and, and the way that people have actually been dictated to in terms of their movements and activities during an emergency period. Um, my final thought is on the historical question. Um, l- let's be clear. We have a history that is both far and near. Um, I know for a, for a fact that Patrick, for example, was involved in the campaign around Clinton McCurby, uh, a young black man in Wolverhampton who was suffocated in uh, the ne- a next shop in similar circumstances to um, uh, George Floyd, um, which probably many young people will never have heard of but actually happened here in this country. But then again, on the question of slavery, I'm sorry, I'm not buying it, um, Patrick. You know, the majority of slaves in the uh, order of things actually went to South America, not United States or the Caribbean. In fact, the number of slaves that went to Brazil alone uh, could swallow uh, the number of slaves from the US and the Caribbean whole. And what's interesting is, we know very little about the slave experience and how that's in, been informed um, by the, the question of brutality and policing right up till today. So I think that we have to detach ourselves from some of these um, almost ancient narratives and look at what is new, what is contemporary in terms of this discussion around race. I'll leave it there.
6: Thank you, Kenley, And uh, Cheryl, your thoughts, please. Um, so I'm, I'm... Really interested in these definitions of um, racism what is racism what is anti racism um, coming up and um, and I think that uh, what Kerry was describing about was re- is really about a change in attitudes and i think um, across in both america and um, Britain, there has been a real liberalisation of attitudes towards um, it, about race. So um, people are much more relaxed about the whole thing, right? But that doesn't mean to say that um, uh, I mean that there, there is there's a decline in prejudice. There's, there's a there's a decline in kind of racist attitudes, but that doesn't mean to say that um, systemic racism, which seems to be kind of poo poo at the moment, doesn't exist still. Um, so Historically, what, the way I think about it is that, um, you know, when Martin Luther King left the South after he'd got the Civil Rights Act passed, so all the uh, the segregation, the disenfranchisement in the South had been removed and, you know, he was very victorious after 1965. He went, to, um, he went to the North, he went to Chicago and he tried to um, start up an open housing, he called for open housing, an open housing programme and um and he came up with he was very surprised to come up he thought this was just going to be like the south you know we'll kind of do our non-violent protest and we'll show that this can all be broken down but there were vested interests that in the mortgage companies in the city government even in the federal government programs in the homeowners you know in so many different areas that it was going to take a lot more in order to break down racial segregation in chicago than it was to do that in mississippi Um, And so I think the northern problem in the states was in the urban cities. And then, you know, then the riots kind of broke out because uh, because they after Martin Luther King was shot. Because there was so much anger about that and the the kind of the refusal of um, Americans to be able to uh, confront deeper systems systemic problems of race. Um, So that's the problem of racism, which continues and segregation and urban poverty and all of the things that African Americans are suffering from, including mass incarceration, um, which really need to be confronted and dealt with. But I think that um, uh, the anti-racism of today is actually working to avoid confronting those things, right? So they are focusing on statues. They're focusing on cultural representations. They're focusing on getting a few kind of um, tokenistic um, people into high places or whatever. They're not dealing with the, the mass poverty, the, the uh, unemployment, the, the in- incarceration, and the, segre- the racial seg- segregation, which is huge in the States. And I'm not saying Britain is like that at all, because it isn't. Um, mm-hmm. the the US has a a particular problem. But what the, I want to say that anti-racism today is is taken a form which is um, really about consolidating the moral authority of this kind of soft power cultural elites. And it is not about actually tackling racism that really does exist.
1: Brilliant, thank you, Cheryl. Um, We were meant to be ending there and that's what I told the speakers that we'd be ending at 8.30 but I want to run on um, until nine o'clock because there's a huge amount of people still with their hands up but speakers if you have to leave I know that some of you have been teaching um, all day then then that's fine just let me know but if you if you can stay on that would be brilliant because I'd like to come back to you after I've taken um, as many of these people with their hands up Um, so just flag it to me on the chat if you have to go and that's absolutely fine because I've run on. Um, so let's take these comments now. Please make them brief, and I will. I will just cut you off if you start doing a speech because we need to get through them. But one thing I'd like to see, perhaps raised in this debate, just from my two cents, is that Patrick and others have raised the issue of class, and there's been a lot of has um, been a lot of dead black leaders um, raised in the discussion. Martin Luther King and others. What about someone like Fred Hampton? You know, what about the idea of this turning into uh, being broadened out into something that resembles a discussion about class politics uh, in America as well as the UK. I mean, that's one of the things that th- that those protests had going for them was that, you know, I, I'm not very good at judging crowds, but I'd take a guess to say that they weren't stereotypical in terms of being dominated by university-educated to, you know, your stereotypical middle-class kids. So does class play a role here, or is that kind of, again, harking back through history at things that have already been decided and failed um Kimberly I'm going to come to you first so over to you
14: uh so first of all I'm 30 34 um I have three children um two teenage two teenagers and I was born here my parents are Jamaican um so first of all I'm I'm surprised at the amount of white people on this on this zoom call I'm going to be really honest with you I was shocked when I logged on. Um, So that's really interesting for me because it gives me a sense of, so white people do actually have an interest in this subject and they do possibly want to see a change. For me, I've experienced racism from the day dot, from school. Right now with my children in school, I've seen it. It's a real lived experience for me. So the issue here is sometimes when I hear um, white people talk about racism, I feel like they don't understand. If I cut my hand, you can empathize with me because you see the blood, so you can empathize. But the pain, I feel it because it's my hand that was cut. So what I I want to sort of highlight here is is when we say to, to white people, you don't fully understand. It's not because we're discrediting your your view, but what we're trying to say to you is you don't feel that same pain. When you walk in a shop, it's that unspoken racism. You can't put your finger on it, but that feeling is there. When your son goes to school and he's been treated unfairly because of the color of his skin, you can't prove it, but it's embedded in the educational system. So what I'm trying to highlight is to dismiss history is 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 very. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not tackling the problem because we're here today in 2020 because of history. So if you dismiss history, you're not um, understanding why we are here today. So for me, um, I think that history needs to be looked into. I think there needs to be more conversations like this because there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings. We need to have more conversations and have real change. I think that when we have black movements, we need to include white people in the movements because we need both narratives. But I believe that, but white people just kind of need to understand the pain that is behind this. It's been going on all my life. I'm 34 and Mm -hmm. by the time I die, it's still not going to be fully changed. Okay. So that's, my, that's my point.
1: Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kimberly. That's great. Um, uh, I'm going to now just because Patrick Vernon has to leave. He's got another Zoom call. Um, I assume all the other speakers are staying on. So I'm just going to bring Patrick in quickly for some final comments because otherwise we won't hear from him again. So, um, Patrick, take it away.
2: Yeah, just want to uh, thank the organisers for organising this debate. Uh, I've been on lots of Zoom calls over the last few weeks and... And looking at a whole range of issues connected with mental health, coronavirus, black identity, stuff like that. And I think we need to have more Zoom calls where a lot of people, and I know not everyone agrees with my viewpoints, but the whole idea is to, it's about the battle of ideas, it's about a dialogue and engagement. And we don't have enough of this um, engagement. And if we have more of it, then I think people might understand and preach more about the black lived experience. We have 400 years of oppression, but white people, I'm, tell, I'm telling you, you don't understand it. You might think you do, you might give the impression that you might see some uh, aspects of that, but you don't understand it. Um, you know, and, and the reason why you don't understand it, as, as in a seminal book written by Paul Gilroy, uh, There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Check, uh, can I recommend anyone to read that? Um, um, and the reason why he wrote that book and the reason why I use that expression uh, is because actually black people have made the Union Jack. Through blood, sweat, and tears of 400 years, I have to keep emphasizing that, you know, because people always say, um, "What's this? What's this history going to do with it?" We're in 2020. Why are you harping about the past? But this country spends more of its time talking about the past. And we talk of, when we start to talk about articulate our past, we are shut down and and completely um, ignored. And and one of the key um, fault lines in history and fault lines in race in Britain is a lot of white people don't, don't want to talk about issue around race because they feel uncomfortable and so therefore when you have need to have more spaces like this to talk about this issue but when someone a black person talks about their lived experience of of race and discrimination take it seriously don't just poo poo it and ignore it because that for someone to share that experience to come, to articulate it on a zoom call or, or, or at an event or whatever fora, it's, it's, it's hard work. Every day we have to live this. And if you were to have 10% of our lived experience and appreciate that, then I think Britain would be a better place. So I think it's about having more dialogue, more debate. And yes, it's all about context, I'm sorry. The context influences the w- where we are now, influences all the stuff that we're doing around social policy, change, and if we want to have real democratic change and, and I think some of the points that have been made that um, about the whole stuff around anti-racism is quite interesting we've had the histories of anti-racism movements um, during the 1930s when uh, Oswald Mosley in East London were attacking Jewish people there was anti-racism movement then there was anti-racism movement in the, in the, um, in the 60s as I mentioned the likes of mm. um, Baroness um, Barrow was involved we had anti-racist movements around rock against racism when Eric Clapton user, user, was identifying himself with Hitler and fascism and that's why uh, rock against racism. In the 80s we had the same thing and now Black Lives Matter is an, it's a continuum of anti-racist struggle but this time now black people are taking the lead and we want your support and the word of alliances or legion is important, it's about supporting that as well And I think that's very important. So uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the evening and hopefully we'll have more battles and more dialogue.
1: Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for your thoughts. And let's, fingers crossed that the next time we have a a big battle, it will actually be in person (laughs) rather than on Zoom. And so we, and you will of course be there. Patrick has spoken at our festival for years. So thank you for your time tonight, Patrick, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, Right, I'm going to, zoom through the rest of you guys now um and really i'm talking about a minute each um so we're gonna start with um someone who has a zero in their name osakoya um if you far away
15: it's it's actually kevin
1: oh it's kevin how go ahead kevin
15: my work computer um my very basic point <laughs> is that there is a real different experience between uh race in the UK and race in the United States and this isn't really appreciated so the United States is above all segregated by almost any measure. You can look and there's extreme segregation in the United States in terms of residential neighborhoods, in terms of uh, wealth and income, um, in terms of basically, you know, even the chances of getting married to a person of, uh, if you are black, getting married to a white person are very, very low, 12% for males, uh, 6% for females. In London, if you're a black male, you're more likely to marry a white woman if you get married. So there's not the same segregation here. And I wish people would not sort of talk about it in these international terms as if there's some sort of uh, international racial experience and international whiteness. And very quickly, as a historian, please shut up about history, uh, because I don't think that the history is that particularly relevant, particularly if you talk about slavery. If you take somebody coming from an African background, walking down the street in Minneapolis, they're not going to talk about it, you know, they're not going to have a different experience. The United States is a racialized place and you will be judged for your skin color, not for the background and what happened to your ancestors.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Um, right, Toby Marshall up next.
8: Um, I just wanted to ask the panelists, do, do you think one element of this is that there's, there's a strong element of government bedwetting here, I mean, we had, you know, 137,000 people protesting to protest. Sadly, 62 officers um, hurt. Um, That seems like, you know, quite a peaceable set of demonstrations. And yet we've had a massively
4: disproportionate reaction to that.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Toby. Nice and short. Right. I'm going to now go to um, Ramaisa Khan.
16: Um, Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, um, as a young person myself, I think that uh, when you were saying at the start how a no reaction is the worst thing that could happen I think that's wrong I think that actually making a mockery of the incident and just blindly following like Black Lives Matter trend is becoming like a hashtag now and people are just forced to comply and uh, post a black square otherwise like you're racist if you don't post a black square and we constantly being um, questioned and pressurized into thinking that um, you have to say something otherwise like you're uh, like slandered or immediately. I think it's important to encourage people to use your platform yes and use your voice to express that like racism is a massive issue at, at the moment. Um, I feel like educating young people on the deep argument that um, institutional racism still exists and um, is camouflaged in our justice system is effective and not just posting something for on social social media just for the sake of it and jumping on a bang, bandwagon um is is less effective
1: brilliant thank you very much for those comments uh nancy mcdermott now
17: I see it there are three things going on that make this difficult the first is um is the ongoing struggle of black americans to just become americans not black americans the way that that's expressing itself in terms of individualism in terms of feelings and political correctness. But the most important thing, and the thing that I think is driving um, this, and we need to recognize this, is the moral collapse of the American elite. Um, and that, not the, not, the, not the racial experience in the US and the UK, that is not what is in common here. What is in common here is the moral collapse of the elite, um, which is why in the United States, this has become a new religion. Um, with these weird, self-abasing, uh, pious reactions of bowing down, of washing your feet, of people prostrating themselves. Um, and it's created a seriously frightening mood of conformity, where if you are seen, and I'm not kidding, if you were, if you were to stick your head above the parapet and question any of these things, Um, then, you know, you can lose your job, you can lose your livelihood. And that's really important because we cannot understand why the police are acting the way that they are, why things have not improved for Black Americans if we cannot interrogate this this problem properly.
1: Thank you, Nancy. Uh, I'm going to go to Ike now.
2: Hello. Um, Thanks for a great discussion. Uh, Just very briefly, I'm 43 I grew up. In a neighborhood in East London um, in the 80s and 90s, and I'm almost um, ashamed not really, but I don't feel like a victim, I don't feel oppressed, and I feel as free as anybody else on this panel. Now, I know that experience obviously, I'm, I know racism exists, it's not everybody's lived experience. That is down to my character and my color. Now, my question for the panel is what can black people do as individuals? or, as I hate hate this word, I say it, or as a community, to empower ourselves and take responsibility for our own actions and futures, rather than waiting for an allegedly oppressive external white establishment to do it for us.
1: Thank you very much, Ike. Um, Right, I'm gonna go to Martin Earnshaw now.
18: Oh, hi. Um, Yeah, just a a couple of quick questions. I'll I'll just try, try one, which is to do with, I'm just wondering, first of all, Why is it that the um, debate over here has been so informed by the American experience? It seems that the whole discussion about race has been wholesale imported from um, America. For example, hardly anybody talked about slavery 20 years years ago, where I studied racism at college. It was addressed purely to British problems. Um, So, I mean, and also you've got the confederate statues debate being discussed been transported to a statues debate over here. You've had protests saying saying that people are being killed by the police, which which factually isn't true over here. And so it does seem that, although somebody said that um, there weren't many middle-class students marching as mostly a um, working-class crowd, it does seem that a lot of Black people have still Mm. Internalize this university, American derived discourse. Just wondering why people on the panel think that is.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. And uh, now I will go to Jackie.
19: Hi, my name is Jackie. I'm 46 years old and um, I have Jamaican parents and I was born in this country, but I actually grew up in the United States. So I have a kind of unique vantage point of being able to understand kind of the, the black experience on both sides. And I wanted to kind of comment to the the gentleman who spoke before the last one. Apologies, I don't remember his name, but he asked a very good question about what black people can do within their communities to help themselves. I'm not sure that that's something that even can be addressed fully here because I think that's an incredibly loaded question. Um, I think that I want to respond to that quickly by saying two things. Firstly, I'll, do, I'll go as quickly as I can. Firstly, I just wanna say that I personally believe that the response to what's happening in terms of um, this explosion of awareness about racism, what black people really need to be doing is firstly examining ourselves about how we can heal and address the issues that we have faced systematically over the years amongst ourselves. I don't think, that the answer is predominantly having a conversation with white people. I think the information because of the internet and because of um, you know, the smallness of the world now through social media and access to information is so much wider now than ever before. When I grew up in America, they, the educational system was very selective about what we learned and it very deliberately now that i understand in retrospect whitewash certain aspects of education so there's so much about uh black history and the, the contribution of black people to history overall that was excised from education now we can access that right so and this information is accessible to everybody so i don't think it's really about um excessive debate with white people i think white people should get access to information and learn there's so much there to learn about what it is to be black and the experience of black on being black on both sides of the atlantic but i do think the gentleman also raised a very fair point earlier about work we have to do within us if indeed we have been systematically oppressed if indeed that we have he says he referred to it as alleged oppression I don't personally feel oppressed as a person because I refuse to be shackled in that lies. Mm. However, that oppression exists, whether I feel it or want to acknowledge it or not, because there are too, too much statistical evidence that indicates that it does. However, it's about an individual mindset at the end of the day. And I think Black people we have to educate ourselves on our history we have to educate ourselves on what we can do to fix ourselves mm-hmm. and i just want to address the issue of i'm afraid
1: um, i'm sorry i'm gonna to have to cut you off there in the fairness no of worries.
19: i've thank said what i've said what i mostly want to say anyway perfect. So thank you thank, thank you. you that's great sorry to be rude
1: and cut you no off. Worries. No i'm gonna take two more first of all alan miller and then one more and then i'm coming back to the panel so alan
20: Thank you. Um, Yeah, well I think the impulse to actually go and do something is, can be a very positive one and the fact that so many people were outraged I would say is a positive thing and the fact that that actually change only ever happens really when ordinary people go out and impose it but what kind of change is it and what ideas inform that and I think that there's a big problem and challenge right now that if you think, if we believe that um, everyone is a certain way because of their pigmentation then your belief in freedom and the potential for solidarity and certain interests get pushed to one side. And what you end up doing is having a situation where if you can't build true solidarity and unity and convince the majority of people in society, which is how our freedom works and how democracy and a universal sense of justice can prevail, then we've got a real problem. I actually think it's possible to win over people to ideas, to convince them out of bad ideas. But to do that, you need to debate with one another. And I'm very concerned at the moment that many people are scared to say certain things. And I think that if we believe in freedom and justice and equality, we have to raise a flag for the idea that we can build solidarity. We can talk about interests and collective interests, but also we have to be able to argue openly and honestly without just, calling people names and shutting them down. And I think that's where the current moment is tricky. I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. Uh, but in the spirit of fighting for freedom, that's really what our aspirations should be for everyone. And there's a massive distinction. I've lived in America for 15 years, as well as in the UK. And the everything from interracial marriages not really yeah. being existing there, to how the police are an armored uh, invasion force in many cities and the war on drugs and how it plays out differently there and here. There's a range of issues that can be tackled. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to call things by what they are in a spirit of openness and freedom.
1: Brilliant, thank you Alan. Right, I'm going to take Felon Glenn, Emma Gilland, and then that's it. I'm really sorry to
21: everyone else um, who's been waiting. Um, So Felon. So there's been lots of talk about why we haven't seen much progress. And I think if you want identity politics, identity politics is what you're going to get. So just picking up on people talking about all lives matter. I think that we're seeing a lot of people having a very emotional knee-jerk reaction to Black Lives Matter. And that's because for many people, this narrative that we're being forced to um, Believe just doesn't ring true to us. We see that ethnic minorities in Britain and the States But we're talking about Britain. So for our context, they can get ahead. They can uh, Occupy spaces in government. They can occupy spaces in media. They can occupy spaces in film. They can do well and actually we are seeing a decline in um, The widening gap of poverty for white people. We're seeing a decline in the educational attainment of white working class boys. We're seeing more people, more white people dying in police custody than black people. I'm not saying this to center white people in the argument, but this is going to breed resentment. And I think I've heard people tonight reference CLR James. I've heard people tonight reference um, Martin Luther King and not yet Malcolm X and maybe more recently Adolf Reed. Ultimately the rights of poor black people and the rights of poor white people look exactly the same in the only place that it matters, and that is the ballot box. So why are we continuously hell-bent on dividing two groups that are natural allies? The only way we are going to fix this, it's not from a few middle-class white people, piggybacking onto a movement because it's fashionable because if they don't piggyback onto that movement they're going to lose business that's not brave what Mm. we need to be doing is uniting people who are oppressed not dividing them it's the only way we'll see change i want to know what the panel thinks about that thank you felon and emma
0: yeah so basically i think that i know patrick's not here right now but he had he seemed to focus a lot on the history of like black slavery in America and I think that although it is a very important thing to understand that we need to uh that the focus on these separate issues with the white privilege and how there was another comment about how white people can't feel the pain and I think that is true and like I know that that is true but I think that this is actually quite a negative focus because we should be focusing more on what has been done in the past by black and white activists together to make the changes that have been made and focus more on the common culture because I think in the end this is going to be what is effective in bringing it together otherwise we're just going to keep almost putting people against each other yeah I think isn't that more effective to work together to change it and focus on the changes that's been made together.
1: Brilliant, thank you Emma very much and thanks to everyone and massive apologies for people who haven't been taken, I just have to stop otherwise it could go on all night. Um, so I'm going to now come back to the panel for really brief comments. Shah um, here, I'll start off with you.
4: Look, I mean there's been a lot of uh, interesting um, debate discussion and in the chat as well. The one I'd like to pick up on really is the level of oppression which I think must not go understated that BME people as a class, irrespective of the fact whether they want to see themselves that way, face continually. And I think one of the great um, themes, topics in the chat is to do with empathy. And uh, what would be good to reflect on is really the extent to which somebody who isn't a member of that class because they don't have that characteristic by accident can actually experience, live, and empathise with that oppression to the extent required to be able to campaign against it. I believe they can. They don't have to have that characteristic, just as I don't have to be a woman to be a feminist. However, it's also the case that we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. It is the case that that ex- lived experience is going to be fundamental to understand the scale of the challenge. And I have to disagree, since Felon put the challenge out there, I do have to. Dec- I don't disagree with everything that you've said, but I think it is a matter of degree, um, and the scale of the challenge. I do feel as though, whilst you might feel as though
0: there's not enough room, oh, she's on here.
17: Mm-hmm. whilst
4: you might feel as if there is, the debate is somewhat suffocating uh, for you personally. I do suspect that the scale of the challenge and the scale of the um, discrimination. And the lack of opportunity that people have to face daily isn't fully acknowledged and understood by enough people and those people with the power to do something about it. Finally, if I may, when I regularly, and I get accused of sounding like a lawyer when I do this, um, rail against police injustice, whether to myself or others, it's almost not because I can't withstand it. I see myself as somewhat um, integrated, um, intellectual, able to argue my case, But I'm always constantly thinking about those individuals who may be classified like me, who aren't able to argue their case. Whether it's six immigration officers, two police officers, I was assailed by as I was entering the country once from a a train on Waterloo International. They wanted, apparently my British passport wasn't good enough. They wanted to know whether I'd be prepared to sign documentation under the Immigration Act. Would I like to see a copy? Yes, I went through it painstakingly hour after hour until I won the day, because I wasn't gonna submit to their arbitrary treatment for what I understood to be simply on the basis of my race. So that is what people are having to contend with. And yes, I think there may be an element in which it's being pushed hard, but that's because there's momentum behind this campaign. And it simply is because we cannot withstand the sight that we could be like that black man even though we're not black. And I think that's the unifying force behind this campaign, which could be transformative.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Now I'll move on to Anaya for her last comment.
3: You know, I want many of the same things that has been described, you know, I I want progress. I want people's material lives, regardless of their race to improve. And that's why, you know, a lot of what I have focused on has been kind of more interrogating the ideas behind Um, the Black Lives Matter movement and where that is directed at because I genuinely think that if that is not interrogated and if we do not call it out regardless of who we are or what our race is and that um, we have we're in danger of kind of producing something pretty um, negative. What I actually think um, is that many of the issues that have been described um, that are facing uh, disproportionately um, affecting black people I do think are you know twofold I think many of them again are actually things that are affecting people um, poor people regardless of um, their race and I think that there is you know a a genuine issue of um, um, a kind of very stagnant economic situation that is being felt by a lot of different people but also I think um, I think the dominant you know in my opinion and you know we can debate this um, in another time, obviously, but I think the dominant issues that are actually plaguing the the Black community specifically are actually internal and within the Black community, not necessarily um, predominantly external. I think that there are still a lot of kind of defeatist, um, internalized racism and victim narratives that do genuinely hold people back. And I think a lot of home truths just do need to be spoken about. And I think it's very easy to project an all-encompassing narrative externally without deeply looking at, um, the issues that are kind of binding people down. And I think, again, this, you know, re- repetition of 400 years of slavery, I don't think anybody denies that. You know, no, no one denies that. It is about how do we um, understand history and, 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 you know, how do we move on in terms of creating a better future? And I, th- and I think this um, continual reiteration um, as if uh, Black people must be back- by this particular kind of oppressive narrative of history is is a deeply destructive one, and i 've seen it and um, play out um, and so the other thing I want to say is that i, I don't i agree that you cannot understand or or empathize because you're a white person you know some of the most productive and meaningful conversations i've had about race have been with um, white people and i think that again we have to re-emphasize this universalist humanistic notion because the experience of being black is different for different black people you know people have described this experience of feeling racist racism every single day i that's not what i've experienced you know that people might say well that's my perception is different well we've got to we have to look at that and so ultimately i think that um you know we really 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 need to again continually have these important conversations but actually be a lot more franker and a lot more specific because so far what has mainly been said is it's very vague in terms of fighting systemic just injustice fighting systemic racism what are the specific things are the problem what are the specific solutions that are being proposed and let's debate them and let's interrogate them instead of this very um homogenous narrative which i think is is deeply divisive thank you very much
1: anaya Um, i'm going to take dr cheryl hudson next cheryl the floor
6: is yours i think that hmm so i think the point I want to end on there's so much to say I just this has just been a really great discussion and I and I think that it's just um it's just really useful to have all of these points out there and you can see how many different perspectives people are coming from I mean I will tell you that I was told um that as a white person I shouldn't be speaking publicly in this debate that I shouldn't participate. I was warned off participating in it. I'm so glad that I have participated because I've, I found it's been really useful. But when I lived in um, Mississippi in the 1990s, I, um, I, had, I had a, 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 a truck of, of white rednecks kind of pull up onto my lawn, Shining their headlights in the, in the window, holding their shotguns, and telling me um, that I needed to keep away from black people and that I needed to stop being involved in anti racist work, um, that I need to keep my mouth shut. This was in the early 1990s in uh, Mississippi. In, um, in 2020 in Britain, uh, I get a nice polite email from a, from a colleague telling me that I shouldn't, as a white person, be speaking at this moment because it 's not my place, so it, they kind of felt a little bit the same to me in the sense that um, it was both of them were white people telling me not to speak up on racial justice, and um, I just feel like everybody should be speaking about this. everybody can speak about it. everybody has something to contribute to the discussion it 's something that um, I have studied and looked at and, and, and worked and been an activist in uh, my entire life so um, I've just been watching recently uh, the documentary Eyes on the Prize with uh, my son and uh, one of the civil rights workers from um, the beginning of that discussion um, said that um, the denial of anyone's freedom um, is the denial of my freedom. Black people and white people I think do need to unite against racism but also to understand what racism actually is and I think that this is the most important reason for this discussion is to find out what is effective in challenging racism because I don't think that the current form of anti-racism is very effective at all because it just deals with, um, with symbolism and gestures. Um, um, somebody said, I think it was Nancy said that this, it kind of represents the moral collapse of the elite. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's actually the, uh, the consolidation of um, the moral, of a th- moral authority of a new elite, a rising elite, um, who have kind of a cultural soft power and who are using this kind of um, anti-racist narrative to uh, impose and control people's behavior and tell them how to, um, how to think and to be, you know. And uh, yeah, we all need to speak out and speak our minds and, and um, you know, free speech. I think uh, um, free speech is a really important issue in the anti-racist struggle, actually. So I'll leave it there.
1: Brilliant, thank you, Cheryl. And last but not least, Kunle, your final thoughts.
5: Well, um, there's so much there, um, but I think, uh, I mean, two things, um, in terms of history, um, I got asked last night uh, by the mayor of London to join the, the new commission that's been set up around monuments um, uh, for London, and uh, which I thought was funny. Um, he obviously didn't really understand where I was coming from, just thought, well, well, I've got some interest in heritage, um, but what was interesting is today he's gone out and said that the Tate um, buildings need to change their names. Um, the interesting thing, and this is the only reference that I'll make to ancient history, is that of course the, the Tate and Lyle family involved in the sugar industry were not involved in slavery. Um, in fact, they set up their operation around about 1850 uh, after slavery had been abolished but the myth that somehow Tate and Lyle and the Tate family who donated all these magnificent libraries and buildings uh, to the working class for uh, self-improvement are now uh, villains of the peace um, shows you that even the mayor of London needs a, a political and historical education. And that's all I'll say on that. My final point really is about the question of honesty. I think there's a lot of dishonesty in this discussion about race, which has been carried by both the media, in academia, and even to a certain extent, by um, a a kind of paucity of a a black political leadership. Um, I say that for two reasons. Um, If we really believe that our racism has uh, become a major problem, and it's a problem of white people, then why is it that in the media and in discussions, there aren't more white people actually been invited in to discuss it. Um, that's the first thing, so that's the first dishonesty. Um, in terms of uh, the question of lived experience, I mean Baljit uh, Sandhu, the, the guy who's the, one of the main theorists behind um, lived experience that's been picked up by loads of institutions, um, I spoke to him the other day and he absolutely decries the, the way that people have uh now engaged in this notion of lived experience and he said to me that he wishes that he'd never actually even put it forward but um you know that's for you to go and read up and ponder but i think the final thing is in terms of for me as a black person um the final dishonesty is the fact that there isn't a, a black leadership at the moment that has the critical faculties to really cut through some of the crap that's been pushed and i think that um you know, where are the Bernie Grants? Where are the uh, Malcolm Xs? Where are the the kind of figures in terms of being able to take a a really serious lens to society and and be able to unpick some of the things that people have talked about? So I, I think my final plea, really, in terms of summing up, really, is a plea for honesty and a fearlessness that needs to be had out in terms of, um, we need to go where the arguments take us, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, even if it means that we're unpopular. And I hope that you know some of you um, involved in this discussion tonight will take on board um, some of what's been said and and go out there and really make that challenge. I'll leave it there.
7: Thank
1: Please thank our speakers. I've unused. Should be down, but with that. With... Um, and for all of your time, because I realized that it's now gone well over two hours, but I think, you know, Cheryl mentioned that someone told her not to do this debate. Um, we'd be lying if we, if we said we weren't, you know, slightly, uh, nervous or feeling cautious about this debate because of the, um, tensions around it. But my God, I'm glad we did it. And this is what the Academy of Ideas does. We have the difficult debates, we have the ones that people disagree over and we genuinely pride ourselves in providing a open public forum for us to hash out these kind of ideas. And like I said, uh, it it doesn't work without you in the audience giving your comments, but it also doesn't work in this period without your support, financial support, if you can. So please head to www.academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Small or big, you know, whatever, it really helps us to keep this going. I, you know, we were not going to solve this debate in 2 hours or 7 hours um, it continues and so i urge you to check out the website academyofideas.org.uk and just find out what other debates we've got on we've got one coming up on the nhs in relation to coronavirus coronavirus remember that you know pandemic happening there's so much going on in politics right now um and we've got a wide spread of events book clubs salons regional salons um a, a Forum this week on the economy on oil, you know, lots of different issues. They're all free to attend. And we would really love as many of you to be there as possible. The, you know, we want to get back to those physical events um, where we can, you know, safely safely brush up against each other in, in terms of the debate. But also, this period of time in the land of Zoom means that we can all get together internationally and across the UK. So let's make the most of it. Join up, sign our newsletter, sign up to our newsletter and if you can make a donation. So thank you to everyone, thank you to the speakers, Patrick, Shahar, Inaya, Cheryl, Kunley. Um, you really gave some enlightening introductions and comments throughout that to help us. And thank you to the audience for being so honest, as Kunley says, actually. Um, this is gonna be recorded. Please, when it goes up on social media, share it around with your friends. Perhaps you can kick off another two hour discussion if you like about it, but let's keep talking about this. Stay in touch with us, and I'm sure you'll hear from us again soon. So I'm going to um, leave this open um, for uh, until about half past nine, in case anyone would like to chat or continue the conversation more. But thank you from me, everyone, and good night. Before you go, I'd like to ask you to think about making a donation to the Academy of Ideas. We've not been furloughed, and we haven't stopped. In fact, with salons and forums and public meetings online. We're busier than ever and delighted to be. But the current lockdown has almost completely stopped our income. So if you're a fan of what we do, we're counting on your support. Click the link below this podcast to denote what you can. And stay tuned for more debate and discussion from the Academy of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts.